I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. The sad and terrible list of mass gun shootings in the United States has recently added three more incidents at the time of this recording. The murder of three University of Virginia students, the killing of five people at Club Q in Colorado Springs, and the fatal shooting of six people at a Walmart in Chesapeake, Virginia. More generally, the overall homicide rate in the United States is about seven and a half times that of other rich industrialized countries, and guns were responsible for almost 80% of those deaths in 2020. In contrast, gun deaths represent about one-sixth of overall homicides in other rich countries. The suffering from gun violence in the United States is unevenly distributed, with rates of gun violence consistently highest in poverty-stricken neighborhoods. To discuss this issue, I'm pleased to have Sarah Heller and Max Capustin join me on Econofact Chats. Sarah and Max co-authored an Econofact memo on gun violence. Sarah is a professor at the University of Michigan, and Max is at Cornell University. Sarah and Max, welcome to Econofact Chats. Thanks, Michael. Thanks so much, Michael. I mentioned the high rate of homicides from guns in the United States as compared to other rich countries. I also alluded to how the effects of this are very uneven across different racial and ethnic groups. Can you comment on that? Yes, the the concentration of gun violence within demographic groups is really quite startling. So homicide is the leading cause of death for non-Hispanic Black men between 15 and 24, killing more young Black men than the nine other leading causes of death combined. And so this translates to a homicide rate that's more than 18 times the rate of their non-Hispanic white peers and about five times the rate of, of young Hispanic men as well. What's been happening over time to the number of homicides and the numbers associated with gun violence? Yeah, so, so in recent years, especially, um, things have been kind of moving in the, in the wrong direction. Uh, homicide rates actually rose by, by 30% in 2020, um, and that's the, the single uh, largest increase uh, on record. And as you mentioned at the top of the, of the podcast, uh, Michael, about four out of five of these homicides actually occurred with a gun. Um, we don't actually have complete data yet for, for 2021, let alone uh, 2022, but there's no indication as of yet that this trend is, is reversing itself. Has this been especially pronounced in certain cities or certain regions of the country? I think actually what's, what's really notable about this recent increase is that it's incredibly widespread. Um, it's been affecting uh, both coasts of the country. It's been affecting urban and, and rural areas alike. Um, and while it's still the case that the overall U.S. homicide rate is below its, its previous peak um, set in the early 90s at the, at the height of the crack cocaine epidemic, um, the homicide rates in many cities, and this includes places like Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Austin, Tucson, Portland, um, they have actually either approached or surpassed entirely their highest levels of homicide ever recorded since 2019. Um, and the overwhelming majority of, of the homicides in these cities are due to guns. 
So one policy response that's often mentioned is stricter gun laws. There are a variety of changes that are typically discussed, including laws that limit access to semi-automatic weapons that can be fitted with large magazines, and waiting periods between the time someone buys a gun and when that person can take possession. Is there evidence that these laws and others reduce gun violence? Yes, there is. So your listeners might know that some research on concealed carry laws in particular has been controversial, with some earlier research suggesting that increased concealed carry deters violent crime and then later studies calling that finding into question. But I would say that today, the best available evidence suggests that looser gun laws in general, both about carrying and about purchasing, will increase violent crime. And although it's not our focus here today, there's also evidence um, that making those laws looser will also increase suicide. And so the evidence, I think, um, on top of that is clear that making guns more easily available will not just increase the amount of violent gun crime there is, but also how lethal a given amount of violence is. Well, so the evidence points towards the efficacy of these laws. Is policy moving in that direction as well? Uh, Unfortunately, no. So, um, you know, we had some tightening of gun restrictions in the 1990s, including the Brady Bill and the Federal Assault Weapons Ban, um, which lapsed back in 2004. But recent policy has really moved in the other direction. Uh, So the the Supreme Court's decisions in the 2008 Heller case, uh, which is no relation, uh, despite my last name, um, and in the the 2010 McDonald case, expanded the right to possess a gun. Uh, By the end of 2021, 42 states had adopted either a right to carry or permitless carry law. Um, And then the court's recent Bruin decision seems likely to, to really further expand gun carrying outside the home as well. So given that stricter gun laws don't seem to be on the horizon, Are there other policies that can help reduce gun violence that might have a better chance of being enacted? Yeah, so I think one one set of policies that often comes up in this conversation um, that could help reduce gun violence uh, concerns the police. So there have been actually a very large number of studies at this point that have, I think, very credibly shown that increasing the size of the police force in a city uh, can reduce violent crime, and that includes homicides. And the effects are actually larger in in per capita terms um, for black victims. However, I think an important thing to keep in mind is it's it's not just uh, it's what police do in addition to how many of them actually do it. That's also very important here. So, you know, aggressive policing strategies that prioritize, for example, street stops and low level arrests um, have fairly questionable benefits. Meanwhile, the kinds of costs that those strategies impose, um, usually on the same people and the same communities that are most affected by gun violence already, it can be quite significant, right? Experiencing more street stops, uh, misdemeanor arrests, and uses of force can produce trauma and anxiety. They can reduce students' academic performance, and and they can lower a community's trust in the police. Um, And these strategies can also cast a fairly wide net and, and ensnare more people in the criminal legal system. Um, you know, possibly resulting in, in higher levels of imprisonment, which themselves can be um, quite harmful for minority families um, and, and destabilize communities and, and reduce employment prospects for the people who are, who are formerly incarcerated. So, so I think that, you know, just stepping back as we, as we think about how we design policies for reducing gun violence, you know, police certainly have a role to play, but we should be mindful to use them in ways that maximize their effectiveness, but minimize the kinds of costs that they impose. Do some of these other policies that you were talking about, for example, 
the stop and search policies, I imagine those would also reduce people's trust of the police and that could set up a bad dynamic where people trust police less and then police are less effective and people then trust police even less for that. Yeah, I think I think I think that's I think that's exactly right. I think eroding that that's trust in policing can have these sort of cyclical effects that you mentioned where uh, people are less willing to cooperate with the police that could further erode the police's ability to function effectively and then just sort of exacerbate that, that, that problem. I think that's right. So how could police activity be more narrowly targeted on gun violence? How would police go about doing this? And are there is there any evidence that there are effects of this that are beneficial? Yeah, so, so I think you can think of, you know, as one potential example of this, um, of how policing can be more narrowly targeted at, at gun violence. Uh, you can imagine, for example, devoting more resources to investigating gun assaults. Um, it's, it's not a very widely known fact, but in, in most cities, you're actually much less likely to be arrested after committing a gun assault where the victim lives than a gun assault where the victim does not. Right? Despite the two crimes being, being very similar, often the only thing that separates them is you know, how quickly emergency responders can get to the scene and, and provide aid. Um, you know, for example, in, in Chicago, the arrest rate for homicide in recent years has just been you know, 30 to 40 percent, roughly, and only 5 to 10 percent for a non-fatal shooting. And that, that low overall arrest rate and, and the disparity between arrest rates for fatal and non-fatal shootings, to your point earlier, that can further erode confidence in the police and, and encourage victims uh, or their friends and families to seek justice on their own. And that can, that can further contribute to uh, this escalatory cycle of violence that a lot of these cities experience. I would guess it would also make the perpetrators a little less reticent to engage in gun violence if the arrest rates are so low. I, th I think that's, that's most likely right. Um, I think you know, that, that, that sounds very plausible. I know that both of you have been involved in researching other non-police methods to reduce gun violence. How did you become interested in these types of solutions to begin with? Yeah, you know, you heard Max mention some statistics um, from Chicago. He and I have both spent time there um, and have really seen up close the enormous toll that gun violence can take, not just on the people who are directly involved, but also on their families and the broader communities. And I think, you know, the kinds of policies we've just talked about, like guns and policing, are, are often the ones that first come to mind as ways to reduce shootings. But in practice, progress on implementing them has just been really slow. And in the meantime, people keep dying at, at just what feels like unacceptable rates. And so I think our interest in starting to look at some alternatives comes from a desire to find some way that that's informed by our own expertise in, in social science to make some progress towards stemming just the, the horrendous tide of gun violence that we have in this country. I mentioned at the outset that you have an Econofact memo on gun violence. And in that memo, you discuss community-led efforts to reduce gun violence. What would these entail and what's the evidence for their efficacy? So one approach that you hear people talk a lot about um, is known as violence interruption. And so that involves mediating active disputes, so sort of directly interrupting the violence as it happens or is about to happen, along with fostering community norms of nonviolence. But, you know, one researcher who, who recently reviewed the evidence about it called it sort of mixed at best. And so many cities are, are now trying to pursue and invest in complementary approaches, um, which can involve different kinds of community violence interventions or what you'll hear people refer to as CVIs. 
Um, and in particular, they're really trying to identify the small group of people thought to be at the highest risk of gun violence involvement, and then provide them with preventive programming or social services that are meant to change the kinds of behavior or ways people spend time that can lead to violence. Um, and so we've seen some social programs prevent less serious types of violence successfully. So things like basic assault in a number of different settings. But the ability of these kinds of CVIs to both find people at high enough risk of shooting or homicide to have some scope for reduction, and then also to succeed in keeping them safe remains really an open question uh, and an active focus of research. Um, and so, you know, in a, in a recent research paper that Max and I have with our co-authors, Zubin Jelva and Ben Jakubowski, um, we look into that first point about just finding people. And we show that it is, in fact, possible using data like uh, arrest and victimization records that cities already collect to accurately identify specific people at extraordinarily high risk of being shot. And more importantly, we can do that without introducing the kinds of racial bias that are of most concern in, in algorithmic predictions. So this sounds a little bit like the Tom Cruise movie Minority Report, but instead of trying to predict perpetrators, you're trying to predict victims. And you're using AI rather than, in that movie, three clairvoyant humans suspended in a shallow pool under sleep-inducing drugs that deprive them of external stimuli. I guess you couldn't find the clairvoyant humans, so you were stuck with AI. And what is a profile, a typical profile of people who are under threat of being victims of gun violence? Well, I, th I think a, a typical profile, um, if you're thinking about, for example, the setting of Chicago, where, where Sarah and I um, did that study that, that she just mentioned, you know, we're talking about often um, young men of color, um, often who've had a lot of prior exposure, not just to the criminal legal system in the form of, of arrests, but also who themselves have been victimized or whose, whose family and friends have been victimized. So, so folks who are kind of caught up in this, in this um, you know, really difficult situation, often living in, again, neighborhoods that are um, quite disadvantaged in a variety of ways. And so th 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 that's sort of your, your, your modal example. But of course, gun violence touches more people than just you know, just the people I just mentioned. It touches their friends and their family and their communities. But, but those are the ones who are sort of, at, um, you know, if you had to paint a picture, kind of at greatest risk for being a, a victim of gun violence. Is there evidence that this approach works, this AI-based approach works? Yeah, it, it actually does seem to work in identifying potential victims. Um, you know, for example, in, in the paper that Sarah mentioned, you know, we, we actually show that an algorithm trained on data from Chicago can identify, let's say, 500 specific people of whom 13% will go on to be the victim uh, of a shooting within 18 months. And, and that's, a, that's a rate of shooting victimization that's almost 130 times higher than the average Chicagoan. So if you just think about the enormous social costs that gun violence imposes, right, and how much how much gun violence um, these men will be, these individuals will be involved in, mostly men, um, if you could actually provide, let's say, each of those 500 people with a social service that was capable of cutting in half their risk of being shot, you'd be justified in spending up to $130,000 per person just to do that. And that's that's far more than we spend on preventative social services for this population as of right now. Um, and just given how concentrated the risk of gun violence is, right, these, these 500 people, for example, you know, delivering preventative services to a relatively small group of people 
uh, could even have a citywide impact on shootings in the short term. And that's all without involving any kind of law enforcement, right? Providing you know, these kinds of targeted services, which you know will often combine things like jobs or payments with some psychological interventions like, like cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, you know, that's an approach that's actually being tried in a number of cities, including Chicago. Um, but we currently lack rigorous evidence about the effectiveness of this kind of approach. And, and so that's why in a related project, um, Sarah and I, along with uh, our co-authors, uh, Monica Bott, uh, Marianne Bertrand, and Chris Blattman, we're actually conducting a randomized trial of, of one such intensive targeted CVI called Ready Chicago. And what we find are, are some pretty promising, if, if not definitive, early results. Um, in particular, providing men who are at the absolute highest risk of gun violence with 18 months of outreach, a job, and cognitive behavioral therapy may actually reduce their arrests for shootings and homicides. Um, and because Ready ha- appears to actually reduce involvement in the most serious and, and most socially costly forms of violence, um, its benefit-cost ratio we estimate to be at least 3.8 to 1. But we think that you know a bit more research is needed to really better understand whether a result like this one is, is replicable. And just to reiterate the point, all of this is done without police intervention. This is a non-police form of intervention that you're showing or seem to be showing in your research seems to work. Exactly. This is an intervention being delivered entirely by local community groups uh, in, in specific neighborhoods in Chicago. And, and you know, we know that other cities are, are thinking of experimenting with a very similar approach, also working with uh, local organizations in, in their cities. So all of these activities are centered on individuals, but what about the environment? What about policies that attempt to reduce homicides by changing the neighborhoods in which they happen? For example, by restoring vacant urban land or remediating lead or regulating alcohol sales or improving schools? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to be gained from thinking broadly about solutions to this problem, right? Gun violence is complex, and so it's likely to take a whole package of complex solutions to address. Um, There is convincing evidence that the kinds of policies you mentioned do reduce gun crime, some of them in the shorter term and some of them, you know, like improving education or remediating lead uh, might take uh, a few more years to to come to fruition. Um, And so I think the sort of thinking broadly about targeting uh, gun violence in particular is useful. I, I also have other research that shows it's possible to reduce violent crime more generally, not just gun crime, um, among less disconnected populations than the ones that, that Max were talking about in, in terms of um, our Ready project. So, you know, from summer jobs programs for young people to interventions based on, on cognitive behavioral therapy in high schools. Um, and across the board, the, the, the policies you've mentioned and, and these work cost effectively, right? That is, they generate more benefits for society than they cost to implement. And so I, I think that's promising. And maybe if we can try to end on a little bit of an optimistic note, um, that there is evidence that it's possible to make a difference and do it cost effectively. But I think you know there's no single panacea. We likely need to keep investing in the kinds of well-targeted individual and community level interventions that have been shown to work, along with pursuing better policing and feasible gun regulation and and even broader systemic change to address really the the more root causes of violence if we want to try to reduce gun violence in the U.S. And of course, the things that you were mentioning, Sarah, 
they will reduce kinds of violence other than gun violence, but even more so, these are important in and of themselves of making schools better, of restoring vacant urban land or remediating lead. These are things that on their own are important and the added benefit is reducing violence and especially perhaps reducing gun violence. That's right. So Sarah and Max, I want to thank you very much for joining me today on A Kind of Fact Chats to, to discuss this very important issue that touches so many Americans and really makes America an outlier as compared to other industrial countries, an outlier in a very unfortunate way. Thanks so much, Michael, for having us. Thanks. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.